The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Ziptility, helping utilities capture more, better, and accurate data from the field. By Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions. By Xylem, let's solve water. And by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. This is session 164. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Chris Dodson of the Environmental Finance Center at Syracuse University is our guest today. And Chris is going to discuss workforce development issues for water utilities. He gives a great interview, lots of, you know, it's chock full of information. And we'll get to that in a second after a little bit of housekeeping. First and foremost, another hearty thank you to our sponsors. Again, they are Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Intera, Xylem, and the American Water Works Association. A great group of sponsors. And if you work for or with any of these sponsors, please, please, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsors firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. If you're interviewing for a job with one of the sponsors, again, please thank them and let them know your appreciation for their support of the podcast. Uh, what better way, if you're interviewing for a job, to let, to let the interviewer know that you're engaged and you're interested in the water industry than, than letting them know that you listen to the Water Values Podcast and you're appreciative of that. So thank you so much. Uh, and as long as you're letting the sponsors know, how about uh, giving the Water Values podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on? That'd be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. Speaking of those ratings and reviews, we picked up a number of five-star reviews recently. Uh, we're up to 153 total ratings, 142 of which are five-star, and that doesn't even include some of the uh, international ratings that have come out. Um, uh, so... Uh, in terms of those international ratings here, I'll read one from Spain. Uh, it says, hi, it says, great podcast. Hi, I listened to your podcast from Spain, and I think it's great. Being in, myself an engineer working in water issues, I find it very useful, all of your podcasts. I have particularly enjoyed your interview with Peter Lake and his views on public-private partnerships, capital costs of government entities. I work for state-owned company building and operating water infrastructure like desalination plants, and I totally agree with him. Thanks again. That's from Luenzunzu uh, via Apple Podcasts in Spain. So Luenzunzu, thank you so much for that great rating and review. Really appreciate it. Uh, turning to some of the domestic uh, interviews uh, and ratings, uh, we have one from Productivity Wizard, uh, five-star rating, and the review says, great Fantastic podcast. Dave is both entertaining. Dave is both entertaining and informative. Worth a listen. So thank you, Productivity Wizard. Really appreciate you uh, leaving that great rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Well, that's that's it with the housekeeping. Let's get on to our feature interview with Chris Dodson of the Environmental Finance Center at Syracuse University. Let's get that water flowing. Well, Chris, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could come on. 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so uh, my name is Chris Dodson. I'm the associate director for the uh, Syracuse University Environmental Finance Center. Uh, we're one of about 10 environmental finance centers located around the country, uh, and we work on management and uh, financial capacity, uh, technical assistance and training for uh, local, primarily for local uh, water and wastewater utilities. So we help the folks who provide those vital services um, do it in the most cost-effective uh, and, and, and efficient way possible. Uh, and so my background really started in uh, environmental science. That was my undergraduate degree. And then uh, that transitioned into a master's program in environmental science. Uh, and then I ended up landing uh, here at the Environmental Finance Center a couple years after I graduated from grad school. And I've been uh, working here for about a decade. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And, and over that decade, I imagine you've seen uh, some big changes in the water industry, especially concerning the workforce, which uh, you, you, you mentioned that is one of your focuses. Um, can you give us some just general background on, on kind of how you've seen the workforce in the water sector change over the last 10 years or so? There's been a, a generational shift, if you will, uh, in the water workforce um, in really in, 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 all sectors of, of employment, um, but particularly the water, the water workforce is, is obviously my focus, um, but it's also one of those industries that uh, is often unknown, right? So uh, pipes and pumps and things are hidden and buried. Uh, water is ubiquitous in, in many places. We turn on the tap, we flush the toilet. People don't think about how that water ends up where in their faucet, right? Right, right. And and, and so the industry isn't well known. Uh, and so uh, I'm saying that because as in the in the in the decade that I've been kind of in this realm, um, folks have been slowly retiring. But that it's been kind of a slow wave of people retiring. But now that wave is turning into kind of a a tidal wave, um, and and it's something that is quite worrisome because we've got uh, a lot of retirees in the last decade by the year 2020 um, we'll, we will have more than half of water industry professionals uh, have having retired uh, and so the reason I mentioned that it's an unknown industry is because uh, you know when you you go to high school or college like I want to be a teacher or, or a lawyer or a doctor or a CPA not, a, not many people say, I want to be a wastewater engineer or a water plant operator. Uh, and there's not a lot of coursework that leads people into the industry. Uh, and so it, it, not being able to recruit and having retirements, a lot of retirements at the same time, is really causing kind of a, a, a big problem for the industry. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I've heard it. I've heard people, other, other people refer to the, the coming tidal wave of retirements that you mentioned as the silver tsunami. What kind of jobs do you see as being the ones we really need to recruit for? Uh, the folks who are working in the facilities, in the plants, the operators, the, the distribution folks, uh, the, the folks who are going around and, and um, maintaining the, the pipes and the pumps and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's really it's really the folks who are, are working directly for the facilities. I think what we're finding is we've, we're getting a lot of 
of young people going through college getting engineering degrees, which is great, but we're not getting as many folks who are deciding to work for their local utilities. And that's kind of where the vulnerability is right now. Yeah, it, it, I, I think um, I, I spoke with Tony Parrott of Louisville MSD recently, and, it, and they kind of identified this uh, need for skilled trades. You know, a lot of the folks that, that it doesn't require a college degree, but you really need to have those people who can who can work in the field and work in the plant, be an operator, things of that nature. So, yeah, I, 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 I think you're spot on there. Um, what's the solution to this? You know, how, how, do, how are we going to? How are, going to, how are we going to attack this, uh, you know, employment need in the utility sector? Well, there was a Brookings report that came out in June of 2018, and and I'd, I'd uh, encourage your listeners to take a look at it. It's actually a, a great read. It's not that long. Uh, it's about 60 pages, uh, and I think 20 of those pages are appendices. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of graphs and highlight, highlighted areas to read, but essentially what they were saying is that um, and I'll add my own opinion to it as well, uh, is that we, we have a need uh, for these jobs and we have got people who need jobs and the people who need jobs aren't aligned both in geography and in skill set with the, the, the jobs that we're looking to fill. Uh, and so they're saying we need to create this kind of workforce development pipeline, a shift uh, of people in both geography and skill set uh, so that we can fill these water industry um, careers. Uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of identifying uh, the problem uh, and, and helping. And they did describe ways to, you know, fix it with uh, some solutions. Uh, I'd say, you know, also that kind of uh, our culture kind of, overvalues, in my opinion, overvalues a college degree uh, and undervalues the trades. And, you know, where I sit, I'm comfortable. I have a nice job, um, but I have a lot of student student loan debt. And, you know, I could imagine, even for my children, gee whiz, you know, if you become a mason or an electrician or a plumber, you're probably going to start off making about as much money as I started off making, if not more. It'll probably be a unionized job. You may only need a two-year degree. Uh, you won't have very much student loan debt, and your job can't be outsourced, right? And you probably won't have to travel uh, very much for work. You'll be able to stay home, have some consistency, be around. And so that's the same kind of argument that I'm making for you know, the skilled trades necessary in, in the water workforce and, and water operators, is you're serving your community. Um, your job really can't be outsourced. Uh, and there's other benefits that come to that. You know, maybe, uh, you know, I, I think we don't, I think, again, we overvalue a college degree and we undervalue the s skilled trades. And we need to, I think, correct that perception in high school, you know, with, with Botech programs and uh, CTE programs and having, having guidance counselors understand that there's value in some of these other jobs for a lot of, a lot of students. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I think um, the the statistics on the amount of student debt that's out there uh, are staggering, and I think people are starting to wake up to it. That that um, you know, if you if you go to college and you're going to rack up that debt, man, you better <laughs> you better hope there's another a job that that's going to allow you to pay it off at the other end. And it's it's becoming riskier. I think. 
Uh, and I, I think that risk is being better understood by the uh, the upcoming generation. Now, you 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 made an interesting comment about geography uh, when you were talking about that Brookings report. What could you could you explain the geographic uh, aspect of all this? Yeah, and I'm going to get the statistic wrong, um, but or the percentage wrong. But you know, there are um, there are a lot of small rural water and wastewater systems out there. Uh, and they serve um, relatively small populations, right? Um, and so the folks who really need the jobs tend to be in places that are served by large water and wastewater systems. So our large metropolitan areas, suburban you know, communities, urban places like Syracuse where I sit and you know, many other cities. And, and so while there is certainly unemployment and people struggling to find jobs in, in rural areas, the bulk of people who are looking for jobs or need jobs are in, are in urban areas. And so to attract, you know, it's a different way of life. It's a completely different sometimes, um, you know, social context for folks. Uh, and so to get the folks who, even if they have, have the skills to get them to relocate to another community uh, is often uh, trying. And so what we're really seeing a lot of is um, some of these smaller systems struggling to attract folks um, to come and work for them. I think that's true. I, I know in the community where I live, I live in a relatively small town and we're fortunate that we, we have a lot of industry and I know the industry uh, the industries here are have that same have the same issue that they need workers, and because it's a small town, they don't have, um, you know, they they don't have that that labor pool that is needed. They need more workers than they have, so we we import a lot of workers from surrounding counties just who who commute. But getting them to move here is difficult. Um, what how, how, do you have any thoughts on how that how how to to overcome that? In some ways, it's kind of messaging, right? Of being able to talk about the the benefits of of the community that 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 the system serves. Um, you know, there there are opportunities. You know, so again, where I sit and where a lot of other people sit, you know, Syracuse has a lot of what I'd call bedroom communities around it, where people live in those communities and they drive 45 minutes into Syracuse for work every day. And so you could start talking about the value, and, and they do that because they love the village or the small town that they live in, um, but their job requires them to come to Syracuse. So you kind of just message it in reverse. Well, hey, this village is a great place to live. It's a great place to work. They need a water operator. Um, come, come out and give us a try, right? And, um, and if you decide to continue to live in Syracuse or the greater Syracuse metropolitan area and commute, reverse commute out, uh, then you're always going to be driving in, in the opposite direction of the traffic. <laughs> so I, I think that's, that's a messaging thing, you know? Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any statistics on how that, that messaging is working? I mean, it, does it, I mean, is, is that a realistic uh, solution? It's kind of a qualitative solution. You know, as opposed to a quantitative solution, mm -hmm. I think we're fighting an uphill battle. Um, from the reading that I've been doing, uh, millennials and 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 now even uh, Generation Z, you know, the folks who are in college right now, they're moving into more densified places. They're moving into downtown 
uh, Syracuse and and all the other kind of middle-sized cities, uh, they're not moving into suburban areas or peri-urban areas, uh, ex-urban areas anymore. Um, they want walkability, they want small apartments and, and being able to get places kind of quickly and easily. So I think we're fighting an uphill battle. So what are, what are some of the other pieces of the, of the puzzle? We, we, messaging is one, um, you know, is, is there anything else that we can do to help, help develop our workforce? I think, uh, so I'm, uh, uh, Vice President for the New York Water Environment Association. And each year we have uh, a theme that we try to uh, gear all our programming toward. And this year it's workforce development. Uh, AWWA and WEF, the Water Environment Federation, had a, uh, a conference in August in DC this past, this past August. Uh, and it was focused on water workforce development. And so I think that all of the stars are aligning as far as the folks who are in this field recognize this is an issue and are starting to develop ways to uh, address it. A few examples that, that me and some of my colleagues have been working on are uh, offering water and wastewater uh, curriculum in high schools, uh, building up programming in two-year and four-year uh, programs on water and wastewater, uh, infrastructure, management, design, operation, uh, so that people know this is, people can get trained to work in the field um, and not just kind of more uh, generally as, you know, civil and environmental engineers who end up becoming professional engineers who typically end up working in the private sector. So I, I think we're beginning to develop the pipeline and we, the royal we, um, beginning to develop the pipeline uh, through high school, uh, through the C through like CTE programs, career and technical education programs, uh, vocational uh, and technical programs and other things, starting to reinvigorate those programs with, um, with the kind of training and curriculum necessary to maybe interest people in the water workforce. So I think that's one piece of the puzzle. I think the other piece of the puzzle is getting folks to, you know, mid-career folks. When I'm out talking to folks who are water operators, I ask them, how did you get into the business? Uh, and virtually none of them uh, decided out of school to work in a, a utility, which I think is troubling. And, and part of that is, you know, I didn't know water or wastewater was a career opportunity when I was in high school. I didn't even think about it until I was in community college and we took a tour of our local wastewater treatment plant. Um, so I think it's getting it on people's radar um, and that early and then also uh, looking at mid-career folks. So when again, when I'm out in the field asking people how they got into, into it, a lot of folks end up in the water workforce from another skilled trade or from construction, right? And so they have these skilled trades, they may not be uh, completely aligned, but they, uh, they know enough and they can do enough to make a lateral move. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think we need to start early and often in educating folks about the opportunities uh, in, in the water sector. Um, once, once let, let's say once we've got the employees at the water utility, what are the strategies for making sure that that, that employee doesn't jump somewhere else? Yeah. 
you know, a lot of folks uh, are concerned, you know, what if we, you know, what if, if I train them and they leave? Or if you don't train them, what happens when they stay? You know, I think there's a lot of retention strategies. Uh, and in some of our trainings, we offer a lot of examples of, of different retention strategies. And, and so I'll, I'll list a few here. You know, one, uh, again, I'm sitting here in Syracuse in December looking out the window at all the snow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> eventually, we're going to have a water main break. And we're an older city, older infrastructure, and we're going to have these guys, you know, standing out in ice and snow in ditches trying to fix a water main. So that's a pretty uncomfortable work environment. So when they go back to the plant or back to the office, can we provide them a work environment that is comfortable? Um, you know, nice chairs and desks and warm spaces and, and lockers and uniforms and and places to warm up and and be comfortable. So, you know, I think it, these are simple things, but, you know, having a comfortable work environment, having vehicles and tools that are accessible and, and available and and work, right? Excuse me, having vehicles that that run and, and have heat. And, you know, sometimes we let our fleet and our, our tools and, and other things kind of fall apart. And that's frustrating. And those day-to-day -day frustrations it, can wear people down. And so anything you can do to kind of ameliorate those, I think, is, is helpful, right? Yeah. Um, so, and then also uh, being, being able to offer people or demonstrate to folks the benefits of the job that they have. Um, again, you know, the, the, the Brookings Institute uh, report that I referenced earlier actually said that at the 10th and 25th percentiles um, of, of wage, of salary, um, water industry employees outpace um, any other sector of employment, uh, public or private. So reminding folks that, you know, this is a local job or your community, your uh, you're you're helping the community, and your pay is actually you know not as bad as you think it is. <laughs> you know I think, and again when I'm out doing trainings, uh, and even if not on this topic, raise your hand if you think you should be paid more. Almost everybody raises their hand. My hand's up right now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's like you have to acknowledge the fact that you could always be paid more, but you know according. To Department of Labor statistics, you're you're kind of doing okay when compared to your your um, your peers, and many of your peers in other sectors have student loan debt that you may not have, and many of those your, those peers probably don't have um, unions or pensions that you are likely to also benefit from. Yeah. And so being able to point to some of those other um, benefits, providing a comfortable work environment, uh, a nice work culture, um, giving uh, kind of evaluative uh, feedback um, in a constructive way, uh, but also regularly. Um, those kinds of things can help people uh, feel valued and appreciated and, and comfortable in their job. Yeah. I, you know, I, one of the things that you were, you were kind of going after, uh, in terms of making sure the equipment works and the tools work and stuff like that, it feeds, it feeds into, uh, one of the other things I was going to ask, which is, uh, compensation, which you also addressed, but, but all that hinges upon the revenue coming into the utility. And I, I know we're not, 
here to talk about about rates and affordability and stuff like that. But one of the big problems, right, is that especially in in utilities that are governed by political leaders, you know, a mayor or a city council or what have you, when they hold the purse strings, you know, they they don't like to raise rates. And what that does is that that causes deferred maintenance. So the tools might not work. Uh, or they're fixing the same thing over and over again, or the the vehicle isn't working, or they're going without regular wage increases. And so, have you experienced, or have you th- has have you thought of that angle uh, when when it comes to workforce development? Yeah, and that's probably one of the biggest issues when it comes to revenue generation and and. Um, recognition of the value um, of both the, the physical uh, assets in a, in a <clears throat> water or wastewater utility and the, the human resource assets um, in that same utility. Um, you know, one of my biggest gripes is whenever I go to a, a conference, Association of Towns or AWWA or any of these uh, trade organizations, uh, you often see the folks who are there who need the credits uh, for professional development, operators, engineers, highway superintendents, et cetera, et cetera. The local elected officials um, mostly do not not require, um, in most states aren't required to get that kind of professional development. And most of the time they are, um, they they have full-time jobs, right? And so they can't always take the time off to go to these these trainings and conferences. And the reason that I bring this up is because we talk about these things ad nauseum and the operators are in the room and they're like, yeah, I wish my my mayor was in the room to hear this right now. Uh, and so it's hard to get in front of those folks to get them to understand uh, the value of raising rates and, and the value of the assets that they own um, and make decisions about. Uh, and there's often lo- at, at the local level divide between you say the, the water plant superintendent and the mayor and the town board, right? They don't necessarily talk as much as they should, or they don't value the opinion of the other as much as they should. So as much as we can, we try to break down that divide and get everybody in the room at the same time. But again, that's, you're not doing that at a statewide scale. You're doing that at a town or a county scale. So while the impact locally could be great, um, it's, 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 it's a lot of, there's a lot of outreach to be done. Yeah. I, 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 I concur with that. Um, one of the other things I've heard from some of my clients is that when they are at a, uh, you mentioned operators are one of the, the, uh, the jobs that we need more of, and we're worried about running too thin on that. So one of the things I've heard from, from my clients is that, Hey, you know, the operators are compensated, uh, and under the union there, they get a certain amount. I'd love to raise my operator, uh, but I can't without opening the whole union contract. And the the incentive, that operator, they'll they'll pay, you know, X dollars more over at some other utility. And so I'm constantly losing operators to this, to, to higher paying utilities. I mean, is there, any, have you ever experienced that? Or have, is that something that, that uh, you've seen out there? Yeah, you know, so it cuts both ways, right? When you you have a union or uh, you know a public employee that um, that kind of goes through the civil service process, 
so those things can often be barriers to, you know, providing the incentives to keep people around uh, or to hire the right people, um, or I shouldn't say the right people, but to have more um, more flexibility in hiring the folks that you need um, in the way that you need them to to be able to work for you. Um, you know, so that's that's a civil service thing. Um, and then, yeah, the unions and, and the negotiating those contracts can be also a, a big, in, um, hin I shouldn't say a big hindrance, but it, it gets more complicated. And, and I think, you know, to be fair to the local elected officials, um, sometimes that's too big of a nut for them to crack. All right. So so how do um, how do utilities that have uh, folks in place, how do they go about succession planning? You know, what what can we do proactively to. Uh, to, to make sure that the transition from the silver tsunami to the next generation goes smoothly? Well, I think succession planning is, uh, is really important. Um, and that's kind of a broad general statement, but I think it, it, the board, the elected officials, the mayor, the town supervisor, uh, whoever, they need to really uh, be on board. They have to take ownership over that succession plan. Um, and I think because they're the ones who are ultimately going to be funding that plan as far as new hires or lateral hires or um, giving people different kinds of incentives to uh, to join the utility or to stay or whatever. Um, and, and obviously folks within the utility have to um, take ownership over the succession plan as well. You know, I, I often say there's no, um, there's no one size fits all for for a succession plan for a utility, you need to identify for yourself who those key folks are. And for some of the smaller utilities, you may be talking about one, two, three, five people. Uh, for larger utilities, you may be talking about 50 or 100 folks, right? And so in some ways, what you just really need to do is look at um, uh, the knowledge and skills and abilities that you have today, um, where you think you might be in five years, uh, in, in knowledge, skills, and abilities. So that's a, a kind of a gentle way of saying, do you expect anyone to leave? Um, and making sure that you're building toward, toward that goal. Um, and so the knowledge, skills, and abilities really are, you know, the certifications, the, the education, the, 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 the understanding of the, of the plant and, and basic kind of utilities so that you make sure that you're always moving uh, toward um, having uh, the the kind of employees you need in place. Right, right. Um, it, it, as we as we move down the tracks here, uh, some of the bigger trends we've seen in the utility industry are consolidation and you know Internet of Things, advanced uh, or you know. Um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, things of that nature. How, how does consolidation impact the, the workforce and workforce planning? And then I'll, I'll ask you about the IOT and that kind of stuff later, but, but let's, let's start with consolidation. Sure. I think in some cases, uh, you know, people hate to give up control over things that, that, that they own. Right. Um, and, um, and utilities are no different. Uh, but sometimes for smaller communities, and we were working with a couple of states last year on really trying to convince some of these smaller utilities that consolidation was in their own best interest. 
they're spending more time struggling to to retain operators or to attract operators than um, than they had actually had the capacity to do right and at the same time their physical assets were beginning to degrade and they didn't have the capacity locally to take care of it so i think what happens as far as workforce with consolidation is that you might have a little bit of a smaller workforce um, but you might have more capacity uh, the, and when I say you, I mean the communities that own the utilities might have more capacity both within their municipality, but also capacity available to them um, if they consolidate with other, uh, other nearby utilities. And that could be a physical consolidation, uh, like an interconnection, or it could just be shared services. Uh, a full-time operator that manages two plants or three plants uh, and has, you know, good certification. Uh, and then you may actually realize some cost savings in that way as well. Terrific. And so um, how about the kind of the IoT AI machine learning angle? What, uh, Where do you think or how do you think that is going to impact our workforce? I think, again, I think we'll have a little bit of a smaller workforce. So look, you know, right now we're struggling to attract people to uh, to the industry. Uh, so we'll get better at attracting people to the industry, uh, but the people who will be attracting will likely be younger, uh, more technologically savvy, more interested in and available to be uh, remote. Um, and we have operate we have plants that are being operated remotely already. Uh, so we've got computers in water plants that are kind of like, you know, the AI kind of situation where the computer is monitoring the plant at all times and there's an operator that checks in every once in a while. If the computer notices anything, it sends a flag to a, a guy who's an hour away who then handles it. So I think we'd have a, a little bit of a smaller workforce. Um, I mean, we're projected to have a gap, right? So uh, if we try to fill that gap with younger people who have the technological skills, not to say that the older folks don't, um, but are, are growing up in this kind of internet of things um, uh, culture, if you will, um, with the consolidation, with the AI, uh, we might have folks who are operating plants um, from a distance more and more. Um, and we'll realize the cost savings, uh, smaller workforce, um, but maybe more efficiency and, and reliability. Right, right. Well, Chris, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I, you know, I learned something every time and, and speaking with you has, uh, I've, I've learned plenty. Um, and so, you know, do you have any leave behind messages before we, we kind of end our time together? So again, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate this conversation. Um, and every time I talk about what the work that I do, it gets me thinking about more, about more of the work that I could be doing. Um, and so my, my takeaways, I think, would really be that even at the federal level these days, we're talking about infrastructure improvements. Uh, and, and the president will mention airports and bridges and roads. But what we, what we don't hear are pipes and pumps, right? And I, and I remember when I was in high school, our town supervisor came in and said, well, we put the wastewater treatment plant behind the shopping plaza so that nobody would see it. So I think, <laughs> I, so I think that they, they might smell it, but they don't know where the smell is coming from because they can't see it. 
And so I, my, my big takeaway is let's not be, let's no longer hide our, I mean, we kind of physically do hide our infrastructure because it's mostly buried, but let's not hide our, our industry anymore. Let's be proud of the fact that we're providing clean, mostly affordable, safe drinking water to folks, and then trying to recover that resource when they're done using it. And that this is uh, you know, kind of a, a proud, um, a proud industry to be a part of. Great, great message, Chris. So thank you so much. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you, more about your work, where can they go to get that information? Uh, pretty easy, I think. My uh, website is efc.syr.edu. Awesome. Well, Chris, again, thank you very much for your time. You were wonderful. Really enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. You bet. Bye, Chris. Well, what a terrific interview from Chris. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for taking time out of your day. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure for all the listeners, if you work for or with any utilities, you're experiencing some of these myself. I just sat down with with a uh, utility uh, executive recently, uh, and, and he was bemoaning the fact that they were uh, losing so many uh, engineers and things like that to the private sector. Uh, you know, after they kind of worked for a couple years at the utility. So, I mean, I think what, what Chris um, discussed is, is kind of what, what the utilities that I've been working with have, and talking with have, uh, have expressed to me. So I think he was spot on on a lot of those, uh, a lot of those points. Well, what did you like about the podcast? Please tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. You can tweet at me using my handle, which is at DTM1993. You can email me about issues regarding the podcast at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. That's david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the Water Values newsletter at bluefieldresearch.com forward slash podcast dash two. It might also be easier just to Google the Water Values podcast and you can sign up for newsletters uh, where the link takes you. So if, if you couldn't, didn't catch the link, just Google the Water Values podcast and uh, click on the, the Bluefield Research hyperlink. Well, thank you again for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, we have terrific sponsors and they are Black & Veatch, Ziptility, Intera, Xylem, and the American Water Works Association, a great group of sponsors. Uh, please support them in any way you can. We really appreciate their support of the Water Values Podcast. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else 
Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.